first semester, freshman year, my class intro to politics, I believe the professor's name was Professor Ava. He challenged us with his first assignment. He said, your first assignment in class is to go home today and write a paragraph simply telling me who you are when I come in and hand it in, you know, via email, whatever. When I get, grab a hold of it, you'll get your first grade, so on and so forth. And so we did that. We went home. I'm like, oh, man, college is going to be a breeze. If that's the case, I'll write this paragraph, send it to him, tell him who I am. He comes back the next class. He starts reading some of our responses as he's giving us a collective F. The whole class. He said, let me tell you. He said, I, I'm going to read a few. My name's Jennifer, and I, I, I'm from Wayne, New Jersey. I was a cheerleader for three years. F. My name's Joe. I, I, uh, I'm from, you know, Piscataway, New Jersey. I played football for the stuff. F. He starts going through, he's reading, and we're all perplexed, like the nerve of this demonically influenced, satanic dictator we know as a professor. And then he challenges us. He said, nobody told me who they were. You all told me what you do. Your sense of identity is connected to things that are not you. Are you compassionate? Are you humble? Are you prideful? Are you egotistical? I would have appreciated a little more honesty, but you're all telling me external things about you and not telling me you're you because you've been trained to think everything connected to outside of you is your you. He was on to something. As we journey through this series, What Really Matters, the title of my talk today is, Who Am I? Now, Dr. Kirby Clemens, a, a, a spiritual father to this house, once put it like this, there are three yous in this world, the way you see you, the way people see you, and the way God sees you. Very often the way people see us is based on our race, our gender, our social media status or Snapbook, Twitter chat, whatever you use, how many followers you have, that's what they base your identity on, maybe your occupation, religion. Now, when you get to the deeper sense on what this professor was trying to get to us, our sense of our, our us, what our you is, who am I now, is your passing strengths, gifts, beliefs. Those are more intrinsic on who we are, but we all get encountered with this reality, who am I now? And there's a Bible character, and there's Bible characters that deal with this sense of identity, this sense of who they are, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, a very popular passage on his conversion, but from this perspective of identity, and who is he? Who am I now? As I prepare to read Acts 9 to you, let me give you a little bit of 
background where Christianity is at its primitive form. It's at its very new state. It's not some established uh, uh, religious belief system that the government's for and all that. It's not that. It's at its primitive state. And right before Acts 9 and Acts 8, the first martyr, Stephen, gets martyred. He's the first martyr of the faith. He sees the glory of God as he gets stoned to death. And they're persecuting them. So believers scattered all over, leaving Jerusalem because of the persecution, so on and so forth. And Paul was zealous for God in the way he understood God and was out to persecute people of the way. That's what they call Christians at the time, people of the way. He was persecuting them. He was against them. In fact, he's going on his way. He, he's on his way to Damascus to go get some folks and make sure they pay pay for believe walking away from the mosaic judeo faith to walking towards jesus he's going to make them pay and acts 9 chapter, uh, verse 1 starts off and it tells us what happened while paul or saul is there i'll explain the difference later it says meanwhile saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the lord's disciples he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Key identity question for Saul, who are you, Lord? If we're going to understand who am I now, the first principle I just want to pull is who am I? Who am I? And it's made up, your sense of self or your sense of self-identity is made up by a few things. And one of them is your belief system. What dictates your aspirations, your goals? What's your why for doing what you do in life? Paul was his name that reflected his Roman citizenship. Saul was his name amongst the Aramaic-speaking Jews. That was the only difference. But this sense of who his identity was, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the separated ones. That's what they believed themselves to be. He was zealous for the things of God, though his zeal was misplaced in the revelation of who God is until this encounter. But Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means he abided by strict rules. They even added more rules to the Levitical law and so on and so forth. So this was a gentleman that really took serious what it meant 
strength to live out his faith in the way he understood it. He was a brilliant brother. It says he studied under Gamaliel. We learn about that, a brilliant scholar. And at that time, they didn't necessarily, it meant a lot. When you were with high scholars, it would have been equivalent to he was a graduate of Harvard or a graduate of Yale because he stood and studied and understood things under this scholar. Some thought Paul to be influential since he had dual citizenship. And so this is this gentleman who believes this about himself. If you were to ask Paul at that point, who was he? Right before, uh, right before Acts 9, he would have understood this to be who his he is. Your beliefs make up your sense of self. But it's not just your beliefs. It's your actions and behavior that help make up your sense of self. It's not just your beliefs. Because you can believe one thing and act a different thing. Well, that's what psychologists call being at odds with yourself. And so when your beliefs are there, I like the way it was, it was James Clear in the book Atomic Habits. He talks about the, the, uh, the word identity, literally meaning, he says it comes from the Latin word essentitas, which is being, and identidum, which is repeatedly. So your identity is your repeated beingness. What you do over and over again becomes who you are. In essence, to put it on layman's terms, you can't call yourself a writer even if you believe that about yourself unless you give yourself evidence that you're a writer by writing. You understand what I'm saying? So if you've never written before, I'm a writer. No, you're not. But if you journaled every day, then you're a writer. If you kick the soccer ball once, you're not a soccer player. But if you go and you practice daily, then yes, you're a soccer player. So your behavior secures this sense who your identity is. And so his zeal was one of saying, I'm the one that forces Christians to blaspheme God. I'm the one that seeks out Christians or followers of the way to go against God. So his behavior gave him proof and evidence of what he believed himself to be. This is Paul. And not just his own behavior. Remember I said there's three use and the way people see you. Even Jesus himself called him a persecutor. He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, this guy was serious. I, 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 you can be sincere about your faith, but be sincerely wrong. You can be very devout to a belief system that's wrong, but you're devout. And so this brother was so devout at the time. You got to understand, to go from Jerusalem to Damascus geographically was about 130 to 140 miles. It could take a couple weeks, a little, a few days or a little over a week to get to Damascus. He was so gung-ho to simply persecute Christians. I need you to see, that was his motivating factor to go to 130 to 140 miles. Some of us don't want to go uh, uh, 10 miles to get to church. I was thinking somebody, they, they, they needed a job not too long ago. I said, yeah, I'm going to help you get a job. They said, oh, where is it? And I told them it was in this city. It would have probably been a 30-minute ride. Oh, I want a job within 10 miles of me. They were dead serious. <laughs> Don't shoot your shot. But this gentleman, Paul, is a persecutor. He's going after God's folks. Jesus followers of the way, Messianic Jews. 
And then Acts 9, 4 through 5 says something. I'm going to reread it to you. It says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me so cruel to me? This is another translation. He says, who are you, Lord? The Lord says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that translation because there's a key thing right there. In essence, he's saying, you're persecuting me, you're kicking against the goads, you're kicking against your sense of self. And what a goad was is ox. When oxen would get out of place, they had a goad. It was a stick with a pointy thing, and they would poke them to make sure they're going in the right direction. And when oxen would get mad from being poked, they'll kick back and kick against the goads. Little did they know, it hurt them even more to prick themselves further. So in essence, Paul, the more you're fighting against me, the more you're hurting your sense of self and identity. Some of us are guilty of that right now. The more you're fighting against me and your behavior, your actions, and everything else, you know enough about me, but you're kicking against the goads. It's hurting you even more. The cruelty that you have is hurting you even more because this apostle would have heard the gospel at minimum. Why? Because the, the Bible tells us he was right there when Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 8, he was holding the coats of those who were persecuting him, and Stephen was unapologetic of the gospel, and the apostle Paul would have heard the whole thing right there before this encounter. In essence, Paul, I've been trying to reveal myself to you for a while, and you're kicking against the goad. Just submit. See, our sense of self, who am I now? And at that moment when he encounters Jesus, it would have been a very powerful encounter because when you truly encounter Jesus, it disrupts your sense of who you are. Who am I now? In fact, there's a movie, the movie Overcomer, there's a clip that deals with this sense of identity. And so I want to bring it before you and share a very powerful clip with you from the movie Overcomer. Sean. If I asked you who you are, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm a basketball coach. And if that's stripped away? Well, I'm also a history teacher. Okay. We take that away. Who are you? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. And God forbid that should ever change. But if it does, who are you? I don't understand this game. It's not a game, man. Who are you? Um, I'm a white American male. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for sure. <laughs> Is there anything else? Well, I'm a Christian. And what's that mean? It means follower of Christ. And how important is that? It's very important. Interesting. Hi, so far down your list. Okay, wait a minute. I could have easily said Christian hey, first. Yeah, but you didn't. Look, John. Your identity will be tied to whatever you give your heart to. Doesn't sound like the Lord has first place. You're calling me a bad Christian? Let me be a little direct. 
Last time you were here, you said you'd pray for me. Did you? No. No. For someone who knows the Lord, you're acting like somebody who doesn't, which makes me wonder. What have you allowed to define you? When you lost your team, it didn't just disappoint you. It devastated you. Something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. encounter with a sense of who am I? It's Mark Twain who had this very powerful quote. He says, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. If you would have asked Paul, who am I? He's this persecutor. He's this man after people of the way. He's this disciplinarian to make sure they pay for believing this heresy of Jesus Christ. And then he has the encounter that we just impacted, which brings me to this point, which is the title, Who Am I Now? And Paul begins to unpack this sense of who he is. The nature of our God is Charles Spurgeon who refers to him as the great hound of heaven because he goes after those he loves. And God is so madly in love with the with Paul at the time, that he would not allow him to go and move along the error of his ways. So he encounters him on this Damascus road, and it's the same thing for you and I, that he loves us enough to confront, to come before, to come after this great hound of heaven, to pursue and sniff out the scent of where we are, to just display his love. A buddy of mine reached out to me recently, got the call this week, we reconnected via some gaming. I game at times for fun. Some 
on a game that we play together online. We've reconnected as childhood friends, and I've been able to share my faith with him. And, and he gives me this call to say, Lionel, you're the first person I can think of to, to call you because I, I, I feel like God's coming after me in some way. He said, the fact that we reconnected and you're telling me about the Lord, and then my mother-in-law, who doesn't know you, she, she said that she bought me a gift after praying about it. The Lord put on her heart a certain gift gift that she needed to get me so she gave me the gift and when she walked up to me she said the Lord prompted me to give you this gift and then he said randomly my mother-in-law doesn't know you and this random guy at Subway he said this is why I'm calling you I just got this Subway sandwich so what happened? He said this random guy at Subway is ordering his sandwich, and it's crazy because it's the same exact order as my sandwich, and he's in front of me, and he orders his sandwich and buys it, and then he stays there and stops, and I'm thinking, why is this guy taking so long? Just buy your sandwich and keep going. He said he stops, he looks, he goes, hey, and I want to buy his sandwich behind me. So he's looking like, what? what? My sandwich? He said, yeah, I want to buy his sandwich behind me. He said, what are you, why? He said, the Lord's put it on my heart. God told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. I'm buying your sandwich behind me. And he called me right after that. Lionel, why is God doing this to me? Because I said, when God is trying to get your attention, when he's sending people to talk to you and to come before you and to do it, he doesn't just kick the breeze. He's not like us. He doesn't talk about how the Lakers are doing or the Giants are doing or anything else. He doesn't shoot the breeze. When he talks, he wants a response. What's your response now that he's talking to you? He didn't interrupt his Damascus Road experience because he felt like kicking the breeze with him. He didn't feel like shooting the breeze with Paul. That's not why he knocked him off his hypothetical or his hypothetical donkey. He didn't do it for that reason. He's saying, I'm trying to get your attention, Paul, but who are you now is what you need to wrestle with because, listen, it's going to reflect the calling that I have for you. And he finds out as he goes along that he's this apostle that's going to rise up one day and make an impact for the gospel. It becomes to unfold to him. This is the same apostle Paul who wrote about a third of the New Testament. This is that same Paul, the same person who was interested in making sure Christians pay. Is this Paul that he says, who am I now? His, his personhood now is wrapped up with the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants to know, Lord, what would you have me do? That's the follow-up question. Lord, what would you have me do now that you've encountered me? He became one that surrendered his life. He becomes one that walks in obedience. He becomes one that goes blind for some time. It says he couldn't see. Open his eyes. He cannot see. And I wonder what the Lord was downloading in him for those three days couldn't eat or have drink. And I don't know if the Apostle Paul planned to, like, he didn't have enough theology in following Jesus to plan on going in a fast, but he put himself on a fast. And by the way, parenthetically, that's why we have times of prayer and fasting. So the Lord can download into us what he has for us in this season of life. 
So as we encourage you starting Monday to choose those three days, jump on this journey with us. But I wonder what was going on in his times of prayer. It's silent on what he said by those three days. But I wonder when he gets this revelation of Jesus, if he's like, Lord, I was wrong. Forgive me. Lord, I was blind and I was filled with pride and my ego. Lord, for, for having me go after your people. Lord, forgive me for persecuting you. Lord, who knows what was going on for three days. But I do know something that we all know. His life was never going to be the same again. So when you tell someone you've encountered Jesus, there has to be this sense of who am I now, that your identity is wrapped up with this person of Jesus Christ primarily, and the apostle Paul is learning that. And then we go on this sense of self-discovery, who am I now? Who am I now? And sometimes this self-discovery is helpful if I was shepherding you and we were, we were in a counseling session. Here's a list of questions I would put before you to discover who you are now. Because it's important that we start 2020. I'm seeing all the posts on 2020 vision. I'm focused. A new decade, new me. New this, new that. Listen, if you don't find new practices with a new sense of self-discovery, you'll be the same old you in 2020 that you were in 1999. Here's the self-discovery. Some of you weren't born in 1989, but you'll get it. <laughs> Who am I now? Let me help you with a couple questions. First is, what are my strongest areas of gifting that helps you? Paul's wrestling with this to some degree. What's your strongest area of gifting? Because your purpose revolves around your gifts. And please don't make the mistake that some Christ followers do. And limit it, it should include, but don't limit it to the church setting. So only think, can I preach? No. Can I sing? No. Ah, there's no place for me in the kingdom. That's not true. Your business acumen, your level of counsel, your ability to connect with the next generation, your ability to go on and help give people legal advice. You see what I'm talking about? Your gifts really reflect that. What problems am I asked to solve? Sometimes that helps a person look at it a different way. What problems am I asked to solve? When people call you in a pinch, what's the pinch they're calling you for? I'm not a handyman. I have one of my friends. This dude could build a, a Christ Church East Campus Part 2. He's one of those gifted. I'm not the most handiest handyman, and my family suffers because of it at times. But when I'm in a pinch, I'll call him up. That's like his main area. What would take me a whole day, he does in five minutes. That's his gifting. He's clear on it. One of the things I struggle with is bad doctrine or theology. That's what helped me understand that if I struggle with bad doctrine and theology, and I don't like when people preach bad doctrine and theology, I may be called to do something about it. And that's what helped propel me into the area of teaching. Another question is, what can I offer others? What can I offer others? What comes from the bowels of who I am that I can offer others? Am I an encourager? Am I generous? What can I offer others? What, what, when people come around me, what are they walked away refreshed in? Another question is this, what are my unfinished assignments? 
Some of us want a new word from the Lord and we haven't done the old word from the Lord. What are the things that God's called you to do? And what I've learned is sometimes people abort the mission because maybe they got discouraged along the way or didn't work out the first time or whatever, but you know God's been dealing with you on it. So what's the assignment you're called to finish? It came from the Lord. Lastly, what are my areas of passion? What's your passion project? What's your ability to connect? What's your delight? What's your sense of purpose? What's your dream? What's the thing that if, if, if fear wasn't an issue, you would go after it? If money wasn't an issue, you would go after it? I will say this. I, 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 can I, I'm going to put an object lesson before you right now in my journey. As I looked at these areas, your passions, I will say, can change over time. Your purpose doesn't, but your passions do at times, but it's key to keep an ear to what you're passionate about. When I was coming up, I went through this some years ago. I was gifted in the area of spoken word, so I would have said, that's my gifting. I, I, I had the ability to go do something because one of my things was I want to make some ancient truths relevant to a modern culture. So that was part of it. And so what was my passion it was writing and spoken word. In fact, in the earlier days of my time here at the church, people knew me for that more than anything with teaching or preaching or pastoring. They knew me for the area of spoken word. And I remember getting a call one day from Pastor Marlinda, and she goes, I want you to take the Apostles' Creed, an ancient creed, a belief system that, that many people don't know, and I want you to modernize it to fix a problem. Remember, solve a problem. I want you to modernize it and deliver it today. Can I share with you what I wrote at the time? This is the object lesson that most people knew me for this. She gave me the Apostles' Creed, this old creed of some of the earliest Christians, and she said, I want you to write it in a way that makes sense now. Here's what I wrote. I said, I believe in the Father God who's infinite, sovereign in all his ways, almighty. He's omnipotent. I believe he created heaven and earth. It was perfect. He purposed such a marvelous work. From the stars in the sky to the grains of the dirt. Or the sun when it rises till it sets on the surf. This all created before a human was birthed. Listen, he's eternal, the last and the first. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Just know he is the holy one. He's more than a prophet, more than a good dude. Some better stop it. He's a king and he does rule. Conceived of the spirit, born of a virgin. A few kings, when they heard it, they came with gifts that they purchased. But he came instead to come and purge us. We should bow down now and give him worship. He suffered under Pilate on the week of the passion. Jews, as they riot, he was getting beat, there were lashes. He was left to die, then crucified on a wooden cross. With thorns on his head, he did it all for the loss. From a glorious womb to a horrible tomb. His disciples discouraged. They thought they were doomed. But he went to the lower parts to get the keys to open up the doors and set all the captives free. On the third, the unexpected was heard. They couldn't find his body. The resurrection occurred. He conquered the grave. I'm no longer a slave. Salvation is free. He paved the way. Ascended into heaven to sit right on the throne. He's right next to the Father. He won't be there for long. He's coming back quick to judge our right and our wrongs, but according to his blood, we'll be eternally home. I believe.
So that was a portion of it to make it modern to the day and now, a creed that was written hundreds of years prior. It's how it worked itself out in me. That's all I'm saying, how it worked itself out in me when I went through these. Now, when you ask me these questions in the season of life I'm in now, it may look a little different. But just know, I want you to wrestle with that. In fact, on the way out, we're going to give you a copy of those questions. It's a gift from us to you to help you sit down, take notes, and discover and rediscover who you are along this journey. This is not a one-time exercise. It's something you should rediscover and re-ask yourself. So on the way out, they're going to be giving that to you when you leave the sanctuary to say, hey, I really want you in prayer and fasting to seek the Lord in this area. Now, last and final point from Paul's journey that we're learning on this sense of who am I now? He said, who am I? Who am I now? Who am I becoming? Paul is not confused about life anymore. His vision gets clearer. His sense of self gets clearer. In fact, Acts 9, 15 through 16, it says this, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is what? My chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul becomes this individual. We get to track through his writing his perspective of his becoming. He never felt like he arrives. He says, I'm still pressing on to the goal that's ahead of me. He embraced the suffering. He goes, my present suffering is nothing to be compared to the glory that lies ahead. The only thing that can grab a hold and shift a person's sense of self like that is the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And at this time, it's a paradox because though in this Acts 9 experience, he was on his way to lock up Christians, he ends up linking up with Christians. Though he was on his way to condemning Christians, he was communing with Christians. Though he was on his way to weaken the Lord's church, now he's one of the key apostles that strengthened the Lord's church. I want you to see, I don't care where you thought you were going to do, when God encounters your reality, things must change. Motivation shifts, your sense of self shifts. And here is what I want you to get when it says, who am I becoming? If there was something I want you to get, if there was something I want you to hold, is that you'll never understand who you're becoming outside of community. We do a good job in American culture when it comes to individualistic sense of understanding itself. We do a bad job when it comes to a communal understanding of self. Erwin McManus puts it like this. He's a pastor and author. He put, the more isolated and disconnected we are, the more shattered and distorted our self-identity. We're not healthy when we're alone. We find ourselves when we connect to others. Without community, we don't know who we are. 
Community helps put a barrier between Satan and I. Community is what Paul needed. The same people he was persecuting, he's now being led by them as he's blind. This is your understanding. You see, you need community to get a sense of yourself and purpose. And I would venture to say some of us don't got a clear sense of self and purpose because we're too distant from the community of the body of believers. It was community who helped me identify who I was. It was community who came alongside of me and said, hey, Lionel, I think you got a gift in this area. You might want to explore that. It was community that helped me get a sense of it. I'll close with, with this illustration or this thought. Many of us today remove our sense of self and identity away from community. And so I call it we're spiritual orphans. Not that you don't have a dad. You have a dad in heaven. But orphans in that you have no family relationships that are significant. Because you tend to just think, well, I'll just come on a Sunday and that's it. I'll come on this Sunday and I'm done. Don't ask me any questions. Don't get out, get out my business. Just come give me an inspirational word and leave me alone. So we become orphans. We're outside of meaningful family relationships. Some of us aren't that. We're spiritual foster children going from one church home to another church home. So when we go, we spend more time, we get offended by somebody here, we get up and go to another church, we get offended by somebody there, you get up and go to another church. I meet people all the time. They live in Jersey. Who's your pastor? Joel Osteen. How? <laughs> so it's a spiritual foster care system. If you can't get it here, you're going to get it online. But the goal is to be spiritual family. No longer be the orphan. No longer be the foster care. In the same way, if in the natural, if a child was an orphan or in a foster care, we know, no, he needs to be in a loving family. Why? Because that's where he'll develop and understand a sense of self and explore his purpose. Why is it any different in spiritual realms? Why would we want that for a natural orphan or foster care child, but not for your own spiritual journey? It's time to get more closely knitted in community. It's time for us to say, you know what, Lord, it's time for me to know who am I now? Who am I becoming? What can I give to this body of believers for my gifts at who I am? And what can I give to the greater world around me?